The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And we return once again this evening to uh, the subject that we've been talking about for several weeks, and that is the topic of worship. And our text verses here in John, chapter 4, are taken from a conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. And Jesus was there talking to her about salvation... But there was also a, another very important topic that he coupled with that, and a large part of their conversation was taken up with worship. Now, worship is a great topic to couple with salvation because the purpose of our salvation is that we might become worshipers of the one true God. I was listening to an old sermon from uh, our series several years ago from the book of Ephesians, And as I was listening to that, I was just reminded of how often that these types of statements come up during during the sermons here, that when we consider the relationship that we have with God, it always concerns His glory. Our redemption from sin and our deliverance from hell are benefits that we receive of our salvation, but those benefits are secondary. The primary thing about our salvation is the glory of God. And that's what worship is. It's recognition of God's glory. And so we don't find it uh, to be any surprise that Jesus would speak to this woman about her salvation, and then he would put side by side with that this topic of worship. And he said, the Father seeks true worshipers. And his conversation with her was to change her from someone who was practicing false worship to one who is a true worshiper of the living God. Now, if you look in this text in John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, to refresh you just a little bit on the a sermon from two weeks ago. Uh, we had a little break uh, in the topic. And so going back two weeks, the last thing that we were talking about was the reverence of worship. Now, I'm not going to go back through all the previous points that we've been through in the sermon. So we're, we're taking up right where we left off last time with number four on your listening sheet, which is worship must be reverent. Worship must be reverent because when we worship, we, we, we enter into the presence of the holy God. Now, you remember that Isaiah was permitted to to see into God's throne room, and there he saw seraphim, which are the special angels of God, and they cried, holy, holy, holy. You know, I read that, that always strikes me as being something that's really just too magnificent for us to fully comprehend. And I'm sure that that's the way that Isaiah felt when when he saw into the throne room. And he was reminded of the relationship that he had with God, where he stood with God. And he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I might say a little bit more about this later, 
But I don't think that there are too many people that tread lightly enough when they come into the presence of God. Now, when you see all the robes and the hats and the gold and the rings and the, and the incense and all the ceremony that you see, in, for instance, in Roman Catholicism, you, you sort of get the feeling that they could barge into the throne room of God and just sit down with him and make themselves at home. Well, of course, we know that they can't do that because they're nowhere close to God's throne. Uh, their activities are misguided and they blaspheme God. I mean, it's more likely that you would see hell opened up there than you would see God's throne room. And, and from that, we see that, that God is very serious about worship. And we learned that as we looked at Nadab and Abihu, Abihu just a few weeks ago and also with Uzzah. But that be as it may, there is much amiss in the modern church and with modern Christian when it comes to recognizing who God is and how to worship him. Now, what I wish sometimes is that we could go back to the days of the Puritans and there we could really learn what it means to reverence God. Now, I emphasized the last time that we must know who God is. That is, we must recognize who God is. We must see that he's holy. And we need to see how far apart that we are from God because God is absolutely, utterly unique in his holiness. And so we can't come lightly into his presence. We can't come into God's presence with our sin unconfessed. And we can't come without the covering of the blood of Christ upon us. Now, do you understand what that means? It means that we are not welcome to come to God unless we have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We can't come to him and follow him unless there is the deepest contrition in our hearts over the sins that we have committed against him. And so when we come into the presence of God, we must come with our head bowed low, head, heads bowed low. And there, of course, I'm not speaking of a physical position, but I'm talking to you about the attitude of your heart. You have to come to God in all humility. Now, a few weeks ago, in one of the outreach training videos that we had on Wednesday night, uh, in the video, they were dealing with people who claimed to be Christians. These were people that were secure in their belief. They knew, they said that they were on their way to heaven. But when they were questioned more closely about their activities, things that they did, it was discovered that they had not given up their sin. They claimed that they knew Christ, but they were still in sin. And what they were hoping for was that at the judgment that God would be kind and would forgive them of their sins. And you know, I'm afraid there are too many church members today that think like that. They've actually never seen the holiness of God. They've never reverenced God with any kind of understanding about how God feels about sin. And whenever you think about that, whenever you think about entering into sin, just think about what sin did to Jesus Christ. And think about what God had to do to remove our sin. And you would very quickly see that a person who still lives continually in sin cannot be a Christian. Now, the Apostle John said the same in 1 John chapter 3. He wrote, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, I'll stop there for just a moment. The reason that Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil. That means to get rid of sin. And he says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
Now, I'm not going to go into a full explanation of that scripture tonight, but what John is saying there is a person who is born of God does not habitually commit sin. He can't continue to live in sin his life without any kind of repercussions for that. And then he goes on and he says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And all of that has to do with the holiness of God. He doesn't save a person without changing his disposition towards sin. So what we really need to do then is to see the holiness of God and understand who he is in order to worship him. And then we also have to fear who God is. And we spent a good deal of time in the last message pointing out how the fear of God has gone out of our worship. I mean, many of the uh, Christian songs that we sing don't reflect any kind of fear of God. Now, what they do reflect, as we talked about then, was familiarity, and they talk about friendship, and those things are all right, but we do need to learn just how close that we can get to God, how familiar that we can become with Him, because we don't want to overstep our bounds. Well, we need to move on a little bit further tonight uh, in our topic Uh, This is an important topic. We're saved for worship. It's primary in our lives. And this this is why we need to know how to worship God in spirit and in truth. So let's look now at the fifth area of our discussion. And fifthly, where are we to worship? Now, that takes us back to John chapter 4 again. So let's back up to the 21st verse in John 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. I've commented previously on the difference between Jewish worship and Samaritan worship, and I'm not going to go into that extensively again. But let me just tell you that the Jews were wrong in their worship. Uh, Ritualism had replaced true worship. Uh, They were still worshiping at the temple of Jerusalem, but the heart and the purpose of what they were doing there was gone out of it. And we saw in our study of Matthew this morning that Jesus went into the temple complex and he drove out the money changers and all the sellers of the sacrificial animals and he called that place a den of thieves because of the rank dishonesty and the desecration of the holiness of that place. The sacrifices that were made no longer represented Christ. That once for all payment for sin that he had made was not regarded because this is the very thing that they were doing. They were consumed with sin and the practices that they had at the temple. And so with all that cheating and, and all the desecration and the bringing of the livestock into the courtyard of the temple, it was evident that they were not there to worship God. And so Jesus knew all about that before he ever went to the temple. And there he is uh, at Jacob's well with this woman of Sychar and He's telling her about how God is supposed to be worshipped and the place where she expected that worship could be found because that's what she's looking for. The glory of God had completely gone out of that place. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel. And I want to look here at chapter 4, and I want to talk to you for, for just a moment about how the glory of God can depart from his people. Now, this story takes place when Eli was the high priest in Israel. And you remember that was the time of the judges before there was a king in Israel. Samuel grew up in the temple under Eli, and he was the last judge before the kingdom began. 
And during the judges, there were, there were the time of the judges, there were serious breakdowns in the holiness of, of the worship of God. And so while Samuel was still young and before he became a judge and a priest, Eli and his sons were in the priesthood. Now, Eli was part good and part bad. He was good because Eli was a high priest that actually did know the, uh, the Jehovah God. He did know him, and he regarded his position as a, as a sacred position. He knew that. But Eli was also part bad, and that's because what he didn't do was that He didn't regard the sinfulness of his sons that were also in the priesthood. They were very wicked and immoral men, and Eli allowed them to continue in the priest's office. Now, here in the Scriptures, the Israelites were about to go into battle with the Philistines, and when they went to battle, the Philistines prevailed over them, and Israel was defeated. And so the Israelites had a plan, and their plan was that they would go and fetch the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, and they would bring that Ark into the camp where they were about to go into battle again, and that was a symbol that God was with them. So they did that, and when the Ark arrived, the whole camp shouted for joy because that Ark was there. But the ones that brought the Ark were those two evil sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and They had no right to call upon God because of their sinfulness. They didn't know the power that was in the ark. They were wicked and they were unholy. But nonetheless, they're the ones that brought the ark and they expected that God would fight for them. Now, when the Philistines heard the shouting in the camp of the Israelites, they became afraid because they had heard of the power of the ark. They knew that Israel's God could do. They knew all about those stories of how the ark was taken by the priest and how the people marched around the city of Jericho and the walls of Jericho fell down. They were familiar with the ark. But here they are, they're encamped against the Israelites and they figured, well, we're here, so we might as well fight and we hope by some good chance that we'll be able to overcome them. And so they fought. And when they did, the Philistines defeated Israel once again and this time they captured the ark of God. Now, that was devastating news. When Eli heard that news, and, and really that was more important to him than the capture of the ark was more important to him than his own sons had been get, killed in the process of, of, of the battle. When he heard about that, the Bible says that he fell off the stool where he was sitting. He fell backwards and he broke his neck. Now, I want you to look at verses 19 to 22. After Eli died, this is what happened. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, that's Eli's son, Phineas. His daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Now, Eli's daughter was pregnant and she went into labor. And before the child, uh, when the child was being born, she named him Ichabod. And that is a very foreboding name because that name means no 
glory. There was no longer any glory in Israel. Now, folks, I'm afraid that that is the sad condition of thousands of churches today. There's a lot of shouting and praising that's going on. There's a lot of noise in the camp, so to speak, but there is no worship. The glory of God has long gone. The glory of God has left the camp. And like Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, he says to these people in all these churches that don't even know the glory has departed, you worship, you know not what. Well, we have in, in, in our text in John 4 a statement that neither at Mount Gerizim nor at Jerusalem is the place of worship. A Samaritan woman is looking for a place of worship, and this may seem odd for me to say, but there never was a place of worship. Now, it's true that Israel was given the temple and the tabernacle, but those were the places of sacrifice. Those were the places where the, where the rituals of Judaism were carried out, but those weren't places of worship per se. And that's because worship is a matter of the heart. See, it doesn't matter how many sacrifices are made and how many are brought to the temple. Nothing takes place there as far as worship of God is concerned unless the heart is right. Now, take, for example, what Samuel said to Saul. This is what God requires for worship. First Samuel 15, Samuel speaking to Saul. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now Saul made his excuses. He said, I've sacrificed, they've saved all these animals for sacrifice to God. But here is a heart attitude. Obeying God was much more important. Getting the sin out, getting rid of sin, is much more important than any sacrifice that we can make to God. I mean, we have to do that first before sacrifices are acceptable. And so you can come to church and you can raise your hands and you can jump up and down, but there is no worship because in the heart is the only place that you're going to be able to find true worship. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1 now, and here you can see it graphically demonstrated in the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah's time, Israel was in rebellion against God, and as we've just read, rebellion is as witchcraft, stubborn disobedience is as iniquity and idolatry. And in the second verse of chapter 1, Isaiah shows that very thing. And we're going to start reading at verse 1, Isaiah 1 verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Now there God says that Israel is dumber than an ox, They're more stubborn than a donkey because he says at least the ox and the donkey, they have enough sense to know their owner, but Israel did not know. Now we go down to verse number 12. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. 
the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And so here is their problem. They continued to bring the sacrifices, and they still had their feasts just like they always did. In other words, they were right there at the place where they thought that they could worship, and they went through all the worship ceremonies exactly as prescribed, but God said, I will have none of it. And he called it iniquity and abomination. And what was their problem? It was the problem of their heart. And this is what he says in verse 16. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. So when we talk about worship, it's not the building that we're in. It's not the atmosphere that we can produce. It's not the ambiance of the whole thing. Worship is actually a whole life commitment. It is a whole heart commitment. Now, when the glory was gone from Israel, that Ark of the Covenant, that beautiful piece of furniture that Moses was given the plans for when he was given the tabernacle, all the artistry and all the beauty of it, the gold and everything that was in it, that was nothing but a hollow box when the glory of God had departed. Now, what the Jews then had done, they desecrated the temple with all their buying and their selling, and the temple still stood, and they still made sacrifices, but the glory was gone from Israel. And now, what we have are church buildings. Some of them are very beautiful and ornate, but there is no glory there. And people worship God like Samaritans and misguided Jews. And what they do is they worship God in vain. You just take a look at what's gone on. Uh, the clothing of Old Testament priests are back. The vestments, the scapulars, the mitres, you can find all of that in the high church. They have altars and they have their candles. They have incense and the smoke wafts through the air in a pleasing aroma. You remember we had that sign out front of the church that said, no smoke or mirrors. And there was someone from the community who sent me an email and said, I sure do hope that you're not denigrating the use of our incense in worship. It's a wonderful part of our tradition. Well, folks, that might be tradition, but that's not worship. The high church thought that they could bring in all of the worship paraphernalia. And because they'd done that, they meant that meant that God was there. And even Baptist churches kind of tried to get in on the bandwagon because you have Baptist churches that have their altars. And I don't know how that happened because a Baptist church has never had an altar. And then there are those in evangelical churches that have their Starbucks with the singing, and that adds to the pleasantry of worship. But I'll tell you this, lattes with your singing does not make worship. Worship is a response. I mean, singing itself is not even worship. Worship is a response to those things, and it can't be conjured up with all the externals and the gimmicks and the tricks that people try. Some time ago, I received an email. I think it was just a couple of weeks ago. I received an email from a guy that has a worship band, and he was traveling to churches to to help them worship. 
And, and I thought it was kind of uh, peculiar because this person in the promo said that he brought his unique style of worship to the church. I mean, he actually said he brought worship to the church with him. And so somehow he was able to make worship better with him than it was without him. Now, isn't that something? I'll tell you what that is. That's rubbish of the worst sort. You can't bring worship to church with you. I mean, not in that way. I mean, here's a fellow that, that uh, acted like he toted around worship with him as if, as if worship is a place. Nobody can bring it with them. Worship is the attitude of the heart. And the only way that you bring it with you is when you are obedient to Christ and the life that you live bears the image of Christ. And so you imagine the audacity of some two-bit band that thinks that they can bring worship where they go that they could bring worship to anyone's congregation. I mean to a bunch of people that he doesn't actually know anything about. He has no idea what's in their heart. He has no idea what they believe. How's he going to bring worship with him? You can't do that. I mean, the only way that you get worship, as I said, is the attitude of the heart. It's what's there. You only bring it with you when you're obedient to God. And so this guy can't bring worship to anybody. Listen to this comment that was made by John MacArthur. He said, Candles, incense, miter caps, and other atmospheric accoutrements borrowed from medieval high church ceremony have made surprising inroads into ostensibly evangelical churches in recent years. It's not unusual nowadays to encounter such things and other trappings of highly formal religion blended incongruously with house church style informality, unstructured conversation instead of a sermon, or comfy chairs arranged in the round rather than church pews in ranks. The idea behind all such embellishments is that externals, atmosphere, and activities are the real essentials of corporate worship. Nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, neither candles and crosses nor cushions and coffee add anything whatsoever to our public worship. In fact, artificial liturgical contrivances and emblems of pop culture alike have a tendency tendency to detract from authentic worship. Worship is not energized by synthetic helps. If you feel you absolutely must have some highly formalized ritual or a certain kind of mood music, what you're doing isn't true worship at all. Music and liturgy can perhaps assist or express a worshiping heart, but they cannot make a non-worshiping heart into a worshiping one. The danger is that they can give a non-worshiping heart the sense of having worshiped. So the crucial factor for worship in the church is not the form of worship, but the state of the hearts of the saints. If our corporate worship isn't the expression of our individual worshiping lives, it's unacceptable. If you think you can live any way you please and then go to church on Sunday morning and turn on worship with the saints, you're wrong. And so worship will always come back to this. I said it before, I say it again. It comes back to the heart. How about your heart? Is your heart right with God? Now, that's what God said to Isaiah. And this is what Jesus said to the woman at the well. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's no different now than when he gave Moses the plan of the tabernacle and the temple worship. Those things taught people a lifestyle of worship. That's what it was for. And we need to think about that in relation to the church. We're here in order to learn a lifestyle 
of worship. And you may think that you can get that someplace else and that you don't really need the church. But you take, back, uh, take a look back at the Old Testament, and although the Bible does not say that the tabernacle or the temple is worship, yet it did demand, the law did demand that people came to the tabernacle and they showed up there, they were required to go there. And in the New Testament, we don't. Uh, the church is not a building per se, it's the gathering of the people. And the Bible says that you are commanded to assemble with God's church. But we have some who have decided that stay-at-home Christianity is fine, and they can have their freelance family home worship. And we would only ask, isn't that just disobedience to Scripture? And you can't hope to worship God if you're a Saul who sacrifices at the family altar and you ignore obedience to God in the church. You see, people who do that are just like Saul. They're practicing rebellion, which is as witchcraft. Now, we need to understand this, that worship is very serious stuff, that God is very particular about this. And you can act holy, and you can act pious, and you can sit at home, and you can read a hundred chapters in your Bible, and you can pray all night long if you want to. But all you're doing by ignoring the church is disobeying God And all that God hears in his ears are the bleeding of the sheep of disobedience. Now, let me add one more part to our discussion, then we'll finish up for tonight. Sixthly, who do we worship? And that seems like a really easy question to answer. In some ways, it is. You just worship God. Isn't that what you do? You just worship God. But how is it that Jesus said this very same thing to the Samaritan woman? He said it in verse 21, worship the Father. Now, why didn't Jesus just say, worship God? Well, we have to remember that Jesus had some very important ways to reveal deity. I'm amazed by people that say that Jesus was just a man, or people say that he was a created being, as many of the cults do. Or they say that Jesus was just a good moral example. And I seriously doubt that anybody is going to spend time worshiping a good moral example. Now, I'm telling you that Jesus was not playing that game. He was here to do the will of the Father. And in this passage, he speaks of worshiping the Father in verses 21 and 23. And there, Jesus is not speaking of the Father's relationship to us. Now, it's true, God is our Father, and we look to God as a Father for comfort and care, but Jesus was not speaking there of our relationship to the Father, but rather he was speaking of his relationship to him. And the Jews understood what Jesus meant when he called God his Father. And he wasn't saying that he was the seminal Son of God. I mean, they they never would have understood him that way. He is not God's offspring. But to say that God is his father is to say that he is the same in essence as God, that he has the same nature as God, which quite frankly is to say he is God. And Jesus said it more plainly when he said, I and my father are one. And there are many instances of that in Scripture when when Jesus told people that he was God and the different ways that he did it. I mean, he did it enough times that he actually asked the Jews one time, 
Why are you stoning me? Why do you want to stone me? For which works have I done do you want to stone me? And they said, well, it's not the works you do, actually. It's the fact that you make yourself God. You say that you are God. And that's clear evidence that Jesus intended for everyone to see that he's God. There is only one true God. There's only one God to be worshipped, and he's God. Now, one of the things our politically correct leaders always do is they try to be inclusive, and although they claim to be Christian, they will tell you that all faiths worship the same God. So no matter what you think of Christ, God is the Father that all of us worship. All of us worship the same God. He's the Father of us all. And Rick Warren has some of that in his philosophy. Billy Graham has some of it in his So although a person may never have heard of the true God, true God the Father, although they may never have heard of Jesus Christ, and they may never speak of him, and they may not believe in him, yet there is this common denominator among us all, and that is that God is the Father of all people. And so, if you have sincerity, and you really do want to worship the Father, then everything will be fine. And do you not understand that that tramples all over everything that Jesus taught? If you don't acknowledge that he is the essence of the Father, you cannot worship God. All faiths do not worship the same Father. If Christ is not lifted up and believed upon as the only sacrifice for our sins, as the only way to the Father, then there is no worship and there is no salvation. A few weeks ago, I was driving out in a remote area between Lake Sonoma and Stewart's Point on the coast, and I got back on some of those uh, little narrow roads back there, and I passed a place that I had no idea that existed. There was this huge complex of Buddhist temples, and there's a, a Tibetan Lama that lives out there. And there are several temples, at least three of them, that are over ten stories high. I mean, there are golden domes out there. There are hundreds of prayer wheels. And you really can't see much of that from the road. And so I went home and I looked at the satellite view of that area. And it is very, very impressive. And you can go on their website and you can see the things that they have out there. And, and they, they have this, this great complex out there, and there's a lot of worship that goes on there, and they do a lot of humanitarian stuff, and they're commended by all for the things that they do, except for their neighbors who don't like the traffic and the commercialism of some of the things that they do. But, but they, they are missing something there. They, they don't know anything about Jesus. There's a lot of worship goes on, but they don't know anything about Jesus. Now, they do acknowledge him. And they'll say, well, of course we know that he exists. I mean, nobody but a fool would say that Jesus didn't exist. We all know that. So they they acknowledge him, but they don't know who he is. And so it doesn't make any difference how many temples that you have and how many prayers are offered up. There is no real worship there because the missing ingredient, if you will, is Jesus Christ. And you can't have worship without Jesus Christ. You know, people will say, well, let's just acknowledge a higher power. You know, that's what the 12-step program of AA says, acknowledge the higher power. Well, you can acknowledge all the higher power that you want. You can give your obedience and your oblations to PG&E. They have lots of power. But that's not going to save you. 
You know what's happened in general in America? We were once a country that acknowledged the Trinity of God. And when our founders talked about God in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, what God do you think they were talking about? They were talking about the one true Jehovah God, and they were speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, some of them didn't understand that very well. They were living in the age of enlightenment, and unfortunately, enlightenment is a misnomer because all that it did was to cloud their vision, so they weren't really all that enlightened about religious things. But in general, the general consensus in the founding of our country was that people knew that Jesus is Jehovah or Jesus is eternal God. And when we worship, that's who we must worship. When Jesus said the Father in John 4, he didn't mean some ambiguous being that goes by a lot of different names. Now, can you imagine Moses meeting God there at the burning bush And you remember what God said to Moses? He said, by my name, Jehovah, they have not known me. They didn't know me by that, that name. So since they don't know me by that name, then you just give them another name. You can tell them I'm Molech. Or you can tell them I'm Ashtoreth. Or you can tell them I'm Baal. Or you can tell them I'm Allah. No, God didn't say that because that's not who God is. It's not all the same. We don't all worship the same Father. Now, folks, we have to be exclusive as God is exclusive. Jesus said, worship the Father, and he meant to worship him. Worship the Trinity. That's the only real worship. So let's stick with this. We are exclusive, and we are as separate as Jesus Christ was and as the Bible teaches us to be. And so we don't pretend to worship the same God that others worship. We worship the God of truth, and the truth about him is told in the pages of Scripture. It's the only place that you find out about him. Now, you may, or someone may call themselves a Christian, and they can call themselves that all day long, but you have to be a Christian to worship God. And this is why in in those outreach training videos, they never let a person go who said, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, I'm on my way to heaven. They never let a person like that go until they sat and talked with them and found out, you say you believe in Jesus Christ? Then what is it that you believe about him? What do you know about him? And how has he changed your life from a sinner into a saint? And very often you find that people that say they're Christians know nothing about Christ at all. They don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So here's the important thing. Is what you know about Jesus right? And do you live the faith that you claim to believe? You have to get that right or you can't worship God. That's as simple as I can make it to you. You have to know who Jesus is and you must worship him to worship God because he is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Jesus said in John chapter 4. God seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we know the only way that we can possibly do that is by you first 
coming into our heart, by you changing us from the sinners that we are, from you regenerating us and making us new creatures in Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that we'll ever worship God. Help us, Lord, to proclaim that truth. It it doesn't do any good to be inclusive of people who aren't true believers. It doesn't do them any good or us any good because people without you die and go to hell. And so we must give people the truth. We must be true worshipers. And that means acknowledging that you are the one true God, the Savior of our souls. Thank you for your word. Thank you for that truth that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org